Uh, we were out for dinner at a restaurant for a friend's birthday. We had a really great time together, great people. You know, just one of those times when you get together, there's, there's people there and it's a really great atmosphere, great food, even better dessert, right? Um, I don't know about you guys, but dessert, I think, is like the, the, the course to look forward to when the, I know that I'm getting some people who are going to disagree with me there, but I'm a bit of a sweet too, so I really like desserts and I always like to kind of save a bit of room for dessert. And so I went to the dessert cabinet at this place and it was just amazing. There was treats everywhere and it's one of those moments where you just kind of have a bit of choice anxiety. It's like, there's so much good stuff here. What am I actually going to get? Um, there was these rich chocolate lava cakes, these layered caramel cakes, all these really nice things. Um, but on this occasion, I was actually quite full, and so I'm like, oh, I can probably share a dessert with my wife, Cherie, but I probably can't fit a whole one in myself. So being reasonable, exercising self-control, which is good. Um, and so Cherie and I, we had a little bit of a discussion, and we agreed, okay, we're going to share a dessert. Now, I had my heart set on this really rich decadent like black forest cake thing with you know cream on the side and ice cream and all the rest that would have been amazing but I know my wife's taste Cherie she likes um, more distinct straightforward flavors not as rich I would say nothing wrong with that don't get me wrong um, and so I had this on my mind this one cake and she had um, this other thing in her mind and we went back and forth for a little while and in the end I wanted to accommodate her I was like okay this is all right it's a win-win. I'm, I'm still having dessert here. It's not like I'm missing out. So we went with the orange and poppy seed cake. I made sure there was a bit of cream on the side, and that was okay. And so in this exception, I made, in this situation, I made this exception, and I agreed on something with my wife, even though it wasn't exactly what I wanted. And we make these kinds of little basic exceptions and compromises in life all the time. These are something we, we do. Sometimes these are really good compromises that we can make. For example, if you're a car manufacturer and you're in the engineering department and you're having a meeting with the internal car design department, say, and you're in this meeting room and the, the internal guys, they're like, we want to make the heads-up display in this vehicle like even wider than it is. We're going widescreen here. And you as the engineer, you're going, oh, well, if you do that, you're going to have to you know, move the air vents up or we're going to have to move them aside or make them small and that's going to affect all the internals of the car and we're going to have to shift this and that around. So anyway, if you keep going back and forth, you can come to an agreement and, uh, and settle on, on something that is a solution that's going to work for both parties. That's an example of a good compromise. Um, talking about exceptions, if you've got tickets to the Tom Jones concert, you can show that ticket at the door and you're going to get in the front door and go and be able to watch Tom Jones perform live. Now, if you've got a VIP pass, you're going to be able to go around the back or around the side of the stage, show that to the security guard and get in the back way and probably see the, uh, see the band, maybe meet Tom himself. You are going to have an exception made for you because you've got this pass. These are kind of examples of acceptable compromises that we can make. But sometimes the compromises that get made, they're not always good ones. Uh, we can make exceptions to standards that exist. We can make exceptions to morals. Um, we can allow certain things that we might not normally allow to take place. Things that haven't been acceptable in society in the past suddenly become acceptable because compromises can get made. 
standards that maybe have existed can get lowered and, and as more and more exceptions get made. And sometimes this can be a good thing. Sometimes this can be actually seen as progress. Sometimes it can be moving forward, but other times it's actually not such a great thing. And today, as we look at this church in Pergamum, we're going to see what Jesus has to say to this church about them making exceptions, about them making compromises in their situation. We're going to have a look at that and what does that actually mean for you and I today. So we're in chapter 2 of Revelation at this stage, if you've got your Bibles. Uh, We're reading from verse 12 through to 17 this morning. And these are the words of Jesus that are spoken uh, through John in the vision that he had. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some of you among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality." Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. We've been talking about Revelation, how it contains vivid imagery, and this this particular five-verse passage is no different. We've got this white stone, this hidden manna, uh, we've got this double-edged sword, And so we're going to have a look at what these images all mean as we go along. But I want to start with the church at Pergamon. Let's set a bit of the scene here so we can get in and and think about what it was like for these people. Pergamon, truly magnificent city. There's a picture for you of it in the modern day. So use your imagination a bit. See uh, if you can kind of add a few things there and, uh, and make it come alive a bit more. I mean, look at that backdrop. Isn't that spectacular? This is about 113 kilometres north of Smyrna, which we spoke about last week. Um, It was a famous city, Pergamon, really prosperous, thriving city. They were doing very well. Um, They were known as an intellectual base. Their library actually had 200,000 volumes. This place was an epicentre for religious activity. It was uh, the prominent place in Asia when it came to being a religious centre. There's like a 12-metre-high statue of Zeus, who was the ki- known as the king of the gods here in this place. And it was also, Pergamon was the most prominent place where emperor worship happened. So there's a strong focus on the emperor ruling and residing at the time, and the people of Pergamon would worship the emperor. This was a part of their kind of culture and the way they went about things. And this passage starts out just the way it has in the last two sections we've looked at already in chapter 2 of Revelation. Jesus 
gives himself, or does a self-description of himself. He says, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Now, in the church of Ephesus, Jesus says, these are the him who holds the seven stars and the seven lampstands. The church of Smyrna last week, these are the words of him who was the first and the last. And then here, in this passage, he's continuing, these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Jesus is saying he's the one who holds this particular sword and it's a reference to him having ultimate authority. You see, in Pergamum, uh, the Romans were abusing their authority at the time. They used the sword indecently. They used it to actually persecute Christians. And Jesus here, straight off the top of this passage, is saying, I am the one who will ultimately exercise authority here. I'm the one who holds that sword. And then in verse 13, it says the following, it says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. And, and then he speaks about Antipas, um, and who was put to death in the city, where Satan lives. So there's this ref, strong reference to Pergamum being this place where Satan lives, Satan resides. And the greatest immediate threat, as, as I've just spoken about, to these believers in Pergamum at the time would have been the emperor and the emperor worship that was such a strong thing for these people to be involved in. And so the place where Satan lives is most likely here referring to the fact that Pergamum was this prominent place where emperor worship was happening. That's the connection right there. And so, along with this, we actually see that Jesus commends this church straight away in Pergamum. He says, despite all of this stuff happening, they've remained true to His name and they didn't renounce their faith in Him. And then He references Antipas as His faithful witness, this person who was put to death and martyred for His faith. And that would have been a significant event for the, for the people, um, the death of Antipas, but it would not have been the only event. Others in the church at the time would have suffered for their belief as they faced opposition. They would have been being persecuted at the time as well. In a city devoted to emperor worship, there would have been this strong pushback on actually worshipping anyone else other than the emperor. He was the one that you gave worship to. You know, short... They would worship other gods, sure, as a religious epicenter. You know, Zeus was, um, was a god they worshipped. But, but to consider this guy Jesus as king and worship him, well, if you were going to be a person who did that, you were going to come up against hard times from all different angles. And Jesus here is saying, he's commending the people, he's saying, well done for remaining faithful through all the opposition that you faced. Well done. You've done a good job. Uh, just on Wednesday night, we had the State of Origin, for those of you who like rugby league. Um, it's funny, actually, speaking about people with... Uh, my, I need to ask to have my faith increased because my little response I had in here was assuming that New South Wales was going to win and I was going to say, Queensland fans, don't worry, we're just setting it up for, a, you know, two wins in a row and clinching the series. But no, I don't need to use that. I can say, Queensland fans, we're setting it up for a whitewash, 3 nothing over the Blues, <laughs> right? Um, those of you who've maybe watched or at least seen a snippet of the State of Origin, you know it's this, these two distinct teams who come from different states or their State of Origin is different. And these two teams are very distinct. 
They're obviously wearing blue and a maroon jersey, and they come up against each other as opponents. It's very, very clear who the opponents are. If you're a New South Welshman, you are going to see a Queenslander opposing you, coming at you if you've got the ball. If you've got the ball, there is a good chance that you are not going to be standing still for very long. You're going to be opposed and you're going to be tackled. This external opposition that exists... Uh, but what if, just let's get a bit creative for a moment, what if there was some, Queen, let's say you're, you're a Queenslander, and what if there were some older Queensland players, veterans, and they were whispering in the ears of younger Queensland players saying, you know what, just go a little bit easy on the New South Welshmen, just don't, don't go too hard on them, okay, let them in our territory a little bit, just, just go easy, don't, don't try and do too much for them. You know, just imagine if, if that was happening, there was this internal kind of opposition that's happening as well. Well, this is the kind of picture of what was happening at Pergamon. They faced these external opponents, but there was also all of this mixing, this internal opposition and these words that were happening as a part of their culture and, and the influence in their city. And the next two verses in our passage tell us about the type of opposition that they face. Let's, let's read these together, verse 14 and 15. It says, nevertheless, I've got a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. And likewise, you, there are those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So there are these external, on one hand there's these external forces at play, these external obvious visible forces, there's these altars that are built to gods, there's statues of gods, um, the city being this leading religious sentiment, there was all these different types of cults that practiced all these different types of spiritual exercises, I guess you could say. There was the cult of the emperor at the time, as we said, that was one of the biggest threats of the believers. But not only were there those external forces, there were these internal forces as well. Verse 15 says that some of them held to these teachings of these Nicolaitans. And these people were, were a particular sect. And the, the Nicolaitans, they were known as victory people. And they promoted all of these kinds of things that Balaam promoted. So false teachings, idolatry, immorality. And then if we go backwards and we look at verse 14 where it talks about the teaching of Balaam, what do we know about Balaam? Well, in the Bible and in Jewish tradition, we hear that Balaam knew that the only way to take Israel, the, the nation of Israel, out of favour with God was to actually um, lead them into sin. So, take them out of favour with God, destroy them. The only way that to do that was actually to lead them into a path that leads towards sin. And the two particular sins that are focused on here in this passage in connection with Balaam are sexual immorality and food that is offered to idols. Let's talk about these two for a moment. Sexual immorality, it was rife in the Eastern Mediterranean, but it's no less common than what we would see today. But in the Hebrew Bible, what we see is this frequent use of this word sexual immorality that is actually linked with spiritual adultery and this idea of leading someone astray from God. 
And this is found in, in the Old Testament in, in two kings, it's found in the writings of the prophets in uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel as well. And so this sexual immorality that's referred to here um, is a link with this idea of spiritual adultery, this mixing or a, a pollution, I guess, of spirituality that's happening that actually doesn't promote your sense of your, your spirituality in God, it leads away from your spirituality in God. And then you've got food that's offered to idols here. Now, Balaam promoted eating this food that was sacrificed and offered to these idols. He promoted the eating of these, this meat. And as a result, God's people were actually lured into doing this. They, they followed through with this practice. They would eat this meat that was sacrificed at the temples to idols. But there were many Christians who wouldn't do this because they actually knew, okay, that's idol meat. I'm not going to partake in that particular, in the eating of that food. But what happened is for those Christians, over time, as they didn't fit in, as they didn't accommodate eating this food, as they didn't make that compromise, they became more and more persecuted. They were denied the ability to participate in certain activities. They had some restrictions placed on them. And this would have actually meant that their, their livelihood and their relationships and their very sense of living and the way they operated in the city was actually at stake. What does this mean? What, what does it look like? Let me give you a picture. Let's say I'm from Pergamum and I've got a brother and he's getting married. And uh, my brother's got a wedding banquet that's happening and that wedding banquet is actually being catered for by priests who are a part of the adjoining idol's temple, okay? And so we come to the stage where we have the wedding banquet feast and that food has been sacrificed to idols and I'm at my brother's wedding banquet table with him. The question is, do I eat that food that's been sacrificed to idols or do I offend my brother? That's an example of the type of opposition or the questions that they were facing at this time. It might seem a bit strange for us, but it was the reality for the people of Pergamum. And this external and internal opposition just came at these believers from all different angles. And the result, as we said, was compromise was made. Accommodations were made to get by. They thought in order to live well, we need to actually fit into the culture around us. We need to willingly tolerate these invitations from the people of Pergamon to become a bit more relaxed on our standards. We will partake in these various different things. And so they were accommodating the lifestyle that was around them and they were allowing for those elements of culture to influence the way they interacted as a part of their livelihood. And by doing this, they blended in. You put something in a blender, it starts out, you, you want to make a fruit smoothie, you, you put blueberries and raspberries in, they start out very distinct, don't they? A blueberry, you can tell what it is, it's, it's round. You put it in the blender, you push go, you won't be able to tell that there's a blue, when you taste it you will, but it blends in, you get the picture of something that goes from being distinguishable to being indistinguishable. And this is kind of the picture here that we see with the people of Pergamum. They were becoming less and less distinct. And sadly, this is the same for many Christians today. Uh, in some parts of the world, Christian parents might choose to take their children to witch doctors to receive healing, for example. That's a very broad, big example. Um, a modern-day example might have to do with socially acceptable activities. You know, 
do I compromise? If I'm attending a friend's birthday party or friend's party and there's this call for everyone just to partake in a bit of friendly gambling, you know, it's just friendly, you know, do I partake? That's one question you can ask. Um, as a Christian growing up, do you listen to those voices saying, you know, explore your sexuality or, or just try that recreational drug, that's just, it's not going to hurt you or, you know, try out Eastern meditation and New Age spirituality, that will enhance your life. Do we listen to those voices in our head? Um, do we allow gossip to come in? Do you say, oh, well, look, I can speak to some, speak about someone in this kind of negative way because there's so many others who speak way worse, so what I'm saying is not that bad, surely. Uh, do you choose to just tolerate maybe a little bit of the behaviour around you because society says, you know what, that's okay, that's acceptable in society, so you tolerate just a little bit. And while we don't have like an emperor or a king or a queen that we worship here in Australia, we do have many different idols that receive our attention. Materialism, you know, that next big purchase, that next thing that you want to get that provides that dopamine hit that gives you a little bit of satisfaction and contentment of the shiny thing and then before you know it, that sense is gone and you're on to the next thing. Uh, celebrities, they often receive way more attention than they should. Uh, we look, we talk about them, we write about them, we take videos and photos and, uh, and they are well and truly in the spotlight. Another idol is entertainment. You know, Christians, sometimes we might be willing to spend countless hours on consuming media, um, but, but what does it look like when it comes to, say, reading God's Word? And sadly, for, for followers, and I'm speaking in general here, for followers of Christ, we have made accommodations at times in the world for the things of the world. We've blended in in certain ways. We've become, to some degree, indistinguishable as Christians. But even though this might be the case, there's really good news for us. There is really good news for us. Jesus gives us a solution in this passage. He puts, points out the negative things, but thankfully, He's got a solution for us. He's got a solution for the church of Pergamon. It's a two-word solution. Repent, therefore, verse 16. Repent, that's the solution. To turn away from your current ways, turn around the other direction you're travelling and turn towards Christ. You know, even though we only hear it's a section of these people at Pergamum that were giving in to these particular compromises, I think it's really interesting here that Jesus calls the entire church of Pergamum to repent. Because, you, know, you know, it might be easier for us to say, well, I've never taken my child to a witch doctor before, I've never done that. But I think it's probably less hard for us to say, well, you know what, I've never turned a blind eye to some injustice or something that was happening that, that just wasn't right. That's a little bit harder to say. Or, you know what, I've given priority to something in my life more so than I should have. You know, that one rings really true to me. I think about times when I've focused my attention, my efforts, my energy, everything on these things that just didn't deserve that level of attention. Things like work, uh, things like hobbies, sport, music, these are things in my life where I've actually valued that kingdom of self rather than the kingdom of God. And it overtook my headspace when I, would, when I was in those spaces. My thoughts, they would lead away from God. My, my heart space meant that my desires 
were leading away from God. I had this real sense of this spiritual adultery that is spoken about here, that, that weighed heavily on me, this, this mixing or polluting of my own sense of spirituality when I prioritised these things, and it weighed really heavy, heavily on me. But when I, when I recognised this, I knew the solution for me was to repent, just like it's saying here. A genuine heartfelt cry to God, Forgive me, God, for these things that have taken greater priority in my life than they should have. I want to set my heart on you, focus on you. And you know what? When I asked for that forgiveness, God, God forgave me. He renewed my heart. He continues to renew my heart. And this doesn't mean that, you know, I can't enjoy watching sports or partake in hobbies, um, but my desire remains set on Jesus. And you know, we won't get it right all the time. I won't get it right all the time for sure, but the solution is the same for every one of us every single time. It's to repent, to turn away from that current way, turn towards that new way in Christ, to ask for His forgiveness and receive His grace that He wants to give each and every one of us. You know, when Jesus hung there on the cross, he paid the price for our sins for all of time. And you can receive that grace. You can receive that forgiveness and know the freedom that comes when we come before Him in repentance. And you know what the exciting thing is that when we do this um, is the next call. It's the fact that in this passage it says that we are called to be faithful witnesses. This is the call. Just like Antipas, who was martyred for his faith, we're called to be faithful, to have unswerving faith when opposition comes at us, when compromises are a potential. But we're also called to be witnesses. You know, if we're praying for Jesus to return one day, then we've also got to be prepared to be these witnesses, prepared to share the gospel and the good news of who Jesus is in our communities. And, and I know we do that well, but this is, this is our call to continue to do this. We're called to love the gospel of Jesus more than we actually love our own lives. It's a big call. We're called to follow that model of Antipas and be these faithful witnesses. And opposition will come, suffering will come. We know that. Jesus said that. There will be a temptation for us to compromise, to make acceptances, and sometimes that temptation might look really good at first. But the, the problem there is when we value what the world does instead of valuing God's kingdom, then we kind of forfeit our role as being a witness, being a faithful witness of Christ's kingdom. And so, like I said, it won't be easy. There'll be these times of hardship. We can expect suffering. We can maybe even expect others to dislike us or say things about us that are unpleasant. So, how do we do this well when all of these factors are happening, when hardship comes along? I know it doesn't all sound very uplifting, but this particular passage, it finishes in a really encouraging note for the people of Pergamum, and I think we can take this away as a real encouragement. Here is what it says in verse 17. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it known only to the one who receives it. 
Let's break that down. We've got the three highlighted parts there, or three or four highlighted parts there. The one who's victorious, what is this about? Well, he's saying to those who overcome, those people who remain faithful witnesses in the face of the opposition and the culture and the pressures of society around them, those people are the overcomers. So that's who they are. Now, to these overcomers, he says, I'll give these two things, this hidden manna and this white stone. And when we speak about manna, we probably think about the manna that was provided by God to the Israelites when they were roaming for 40 years in the wilderness that, that uh, provided them sustenance as a part of their, their wandering in the wilderness. Here in John's uh, vision, however, he refers to this as hidden manna. What's this hidden manna about? Well, this is the symbol of God's promise. God promises this eternal sustenance, this picture of eternal sustenance without labour, this eternal manna, this eternal feeding that doesn't have any labour. In, in chapter 7 and 22 of Revelation, we actually see it speaks about this eternal sustenance. So this is the hidden manna, this future eternal sustenance that we will have one day. And the second image is, is this image of a white stone. Now, this meaning is a little bit more debated. What is this white stone that's spoken about here? In ancient times, these stones were used in so many different symbolic ways. They were used to um, inscribe words on. Uh, they were used even as, as like admission tokens when you go to public festivals and, and assemblies. Um, but in courtrooms, jurors would actually have two stones. And if a person was found innocent, these jurors would produce this white stone as a part of their vote. If they thought the person was guilty, sorry, not, if not a person was found innocent, if they thought the person was innocent, they would produce the white stone. If they thought the person was guilty, they would produce this black stone. And so this picture reigns a bit more true in terms of what's going on here. The, right, the white stone probably refers to this picture of the final judgment that is to come. This is where Jesus is the one. He's going to overturn the verdict of those people in Pergamum who've been persecuting these Christians, who've been giving them this hard time. And he'll give them, those people who've been wrongly accused, who's, who've had this black stone, he's going to give them a white stone with a new name written on it. And that whiteness can also symbolise purity from sin as well. So both of those images that we've kind of looked at just there, they speak about future promises, future hope, what will happen when Jesus returns in the future. Eternal sustenance without labour, a clean slate, life with Him for all eternity. And this is a really great reminder for us to finish our time with, that when we're faced with the pressures of the world and we might be considering compromise, we need to keep God's future promises in our minds. We can remember that we have a much better world that God has in store for you and I someday in the future. That doesn't mean that we just give up on our time and what we're doing here and we say, oh, all I'm just going to do is wait for that eternity. No, we have a part to play right here and right now. We are called to be these faithful witnesses. We must not rest and we need to step up. And God does have a better hope that is in store for you and I. And His future for you is far greater than any present thing that you are willing to compromise on in this lifetime. Keep that in your mind. So in closing, this is our call right here on the screen. We're called to be faithful witnesses in the present 
who live with this future hope in Jesus. In a world where there's influence and opposition, would we stand out? Would we be distinguishable? Would we be shining lights in the world that needs to know the hope that is in Jesus? The life, the freedom and hope that we can find in Him. And we can do this only when we look to Him, when we repent, when we place our hope in Him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, there is many things in our world, many influences, and there will be temptations to compromise. Sometimes it can seem like the easiest thing to do is to compromise. There's influences and pressures around us. But God, here in this passage, just as you've, you've uh, encouraged the people of Pergamum, we're encouraged to repent from those ways that have led us astray from you. Those ways that maybe we've committed spiritual adultery. Would we recognize those, those compromises and those exceptions, God? And Holy Spirit, I ask for your help for our, for our people here, Lord. In those times, in those moments, would you prompt us? Would you guide us? Would you give us the boldness to stand for you? And that doesn't mean, Lord, we know that that doesn't mean that we, we want to be, be a bad example of, of uh, and, and, and provide our own opposition that is, that is not an example of your love. But God, show us the way to move forward. Would we be people who are faithful to you would we be witnesses who are willing to share your gospel life? And Lord, will we be people who surrender every area of our lives to you, Lord? You can have it all, every part of our world, Lord. Any idols that we might have, Lord, would you uh, work in our heart? And I just thank you, Lord, for that promise of eternity and hope with you that we can look forward to as we are these faithful witnesses of your kingdom on mission for you. Thank you, God, for the ways that you've been faithful to us. And we want to continue to be faithful to you here in Brackenridge, Lord. Thank you for the many ways that we are already a part of, of contributing to your goodness and your hope. And God, I pray that you'd help us and strengthen us, Lord. Uh, build us up, God, as a church. We've been praying for our churches here on the north side. Lord, would you continue to do your work in this church, God? This is your church, Lord. We're called to, to be those witnesses, Lord. Uh, this is your church, Lord. This is your bride. And we, we want to honor you in all that we do, God. And so we thank you that we have our hope in you. We can look to you. In Jesus' name, amen.